Amen, Jonathan. Thank you. Uh, the scripture reading this morning comes from John's Gospel. It is a passage that has profoundly shaped the ministry of Redeemer over the years, and I hope for years to come. It's from John chapter 6, just two short verses. And so if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, beginning in verse 28, it's also on the screen behind me, and it's printed for you in your worship folder. So let's read uh, together these two short verses. Then they said to him, this that's the crowds, they came to Jesus, and they, they asked, what must we do? to be doing the works of God. Now, I wonder how you would answer that question. How would you answer that question if somebody asked you, what do I have to do to be doing the Christian life? What do I have to do to be doing what God expects of me? But here's Jesus' answer. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. And this is the word of the Lord. So say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God, it stands forever. Excuse me, I gotta, I've had to talk quite a bit in the service already, so my voice is failing me a little bit. At, the, at Redeemer, we <clears throat> are striving to be a people who are fluent in the gospel and for the city, and because of that, who ignite <clears throat> and then cultivate a movement of churches and ministries that renew Winter Haven and Polk County through church planting and also church revitalization, but also leading, leading toward collaboration among churches and nonprofits and local business and government here in the city for the good of the city. And all of that begins with becoming fluent in the gospel. And so we've been taking this time to kind of revisit some of our foundational mission and vision stuff. We want to be a people who are, first of all, fluent in the gospel. And I'm borrowing the idea of fluency there from a man named Jeff Vanderstelt, who wrote a book with that title. And he makes, he makes the case, and I think, I think the analogy is very helpful. He's, you know, if you want to become fluent in Spanish, for example... You can take a class at Polk State across the lake over here. There are online resources, but even those sorts of things will only get you so far. You might pick up a few words, be able to awkwardly carry on a conversation, try to order your dinner at the Mexican restaurant in Spanish, which, by the way, you probably shouldn't do. Don't do that. You know, but some awkward, awkward conversation of trying to connect with people who speak the same language. But that's something very differently very different than what we mean by fluent, fluency. Fluency refers to <clears throat> the mastery of a language and the concepts so that it becomes natural, not forced. And if you carry that analogy out, most people have a beginning level understanding of the gospel. They know a few words, but it's not yet their mother tongue. It still doesn't come naturally to them. So their instincts, even though they can, they can tell you the right answers, they can probably even quote you the Bible in some, some instances, their instincts their emotions, their reactions, their real-time life, all of those things are not yet shaped by the truth of God's love for them in Jesus. And so we, when we talk about the gospel around here, we're aiming for more than knowledge or recitation or merely, you know, being able to give the right answers to questions. We're aiming for competency, for fluency in gospel doctrine and gospel, gospel culture. And so that's what we want to talk about again this morning from these two verses. Tim Keller had, has said it this way. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A through Z of Christianity. It's not the ABCs. It's the A through Z. And at Redeemer, we say it like this. We say that the gospel is our curriculum. And by that, we mean that you come to faith by believing the gospel of Christ, and then you grow in your faith by believing the gospel more deeply. And so in the spiritual life, for you to make advances, often deeper Deeper is more important than more. 
Deeper is often the key to change, not more. A deeper grasp of the doctrines of grace, a deeper grasping of the gospel of Jesus, not more, not merely more effort or more information. The gospel is good news, and it is good news for both the lost and the found. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so glad you're here. But what, but what you need the most from this time this morning, the best that we can possibly give you is for you to hear the good news about Jesus and to believe in him. If you're here and you're a longtime baptized Christian, what you need the most, the, mo- the best possible thing we could do for you this morning is to help you to hear the gospel so that you can believe it more deeply. Because you don't start with believing and then grow by trying harder. The gospel is not the diving board that you jump off into the pool. It is the pool. And so the key is to stay on, to stay on the gospel. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, I would remind you of the gospel which you received in which you stand. He said, so you have to remember, you have to remember the gospel. That's the key to the spiritual life. You have to stand in it. You don't master the gospel and move on from it. You refuse to move on from it. That's the whole point, okay? And that's what we want to talk about this morning because that, I think, is what Jesus is leading us to here in this brief interaction with the crowds. Because here in John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, two short verses, but there are a number of implications that we can draw from those two verses and really just three things that I would have us wrestle with together this morning, and they are just this. First, that when you read those, those verses, you see that Jesus is teaching us that the work is believing, The work is believing. And secondly, if the work is believing, then sin is forgetting. And if the work is believing, and if sin is forgetting, then thirdly, growth is repenting. And we're going to see all of those things as we walk uh, through this time together from these two verses. Okay, first, let's look. The work is believing. This is explicit here in in this interaction. What must we do, they say. Do you see that, verse 28? What must we do? The crowds ask, which means they assume that the works of God were works. But Jesus had a very different answer. He said, verse 29, what must you do? He said, the work of God is that you believe in him who he has sent. And so according to Jesus, the work is actually believing. And believing is contrasted here with doing. So let's not be too hard on these people, though, because it's natural to want to do something for God who has done so much for us. However, our want to can quickly become a have to. And when I believe that I have to do something for God, at that point, it is in danger of becoming a failure to understand grace, which is to say a failure to understand God. Because after all, grace is not a thing. Grace is not a concept. Grace is the very person of God. God is grace. Eugene Peterson put it so well. He said, our plans... Like the crowd here, our plans to do something for God quickly become a distraction from what God is doing for us. And which is more important? Well, Jesus' answer here is definitive, I think. The work is believing, that is, acknowledging that the kingdom of heaven is shaped by the work that God does toward us and not the work that we do toward him. But often, we insist on working and not believing because somewhere deep down, we are still trying to earn our own way. That is not how the gospel works. It is grace. As I've said, the gospel is God. And here's the good news, 
okay? You don't earn God's love. You submit to it. His love for you is not the finish line at the end of the race. It's not the medal that you get if you can, if you, can you know, stumble your way into the end of the, of the half marathon. His love is already there at the start, before the gun goes off. It goes before you, and it meets you every step along the way. God's love comes before any works we do, not after. And that is why Jesus says here, the work is believing. Now, I've used this illustration before, um, but it's, it's the best one. At least it, it, it resonates with me. Madison Bumgarner was the MVP of the World Series in 2014. He pitched 21 innings in those seven games with a .43 ERA. Uh, he pitched in one game one, and then again game five, and then he actually came in in relief, I think, for the last four innings in game seven. But before he went out to pitch in the bottom of the ninth inning in game seven of the World Series. So this is like every kid's dream. Every dad and, and his child who's ever played catch in the side yard of the house has always said, okay, it's the bottom of the ninth inning. Game seven of the World Series. What's going to happen, you know? So every kid's dream. Before he went out to pitch that inning, his dad sent him a text to just tell him how proud he was of him and how much he loved him. And it became public later. And the reporters, they asked him, why'd you send the text before the ninth inning and not after the ninth inning? And his answer, he said, because there was nothing that could have happened in that ninth inning that would have changed a thing. His dad loved him before the ninth inning, not after. And that's how God's heart works too. So Eugene Peterson goes on to say, he says, what we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we, in fact, do. Because God is the beginning, the center, and the end of the world's life, of of existence itself. But we're often unaware of God's actions, except dimly and peripherally. Here's what he says. Modern Christians are characteristically much afraid of being caught doing too little for God. But there are moments when doing nothing is precisely the gospel thing to do. Now, that is true in the ultimate sense. I mean, if you want to become a Christian, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, and you bring, what you do, you bring your nothingness to God. That's faith. That's what faith is, is you bring all of your nothingness to, to him. You, you don't bring your good works. You don't bring your moral achievements. You bring your need. You bring the record of your sin and your failure and all the half-hearted attempts at obedience that you've been able to muster over the years, and you bring it all to God, and you say, I have absolutely nothing. And that's how you begin a relationship with with him. But if you come and you say, well, look. I mean, if if you come and you bring it, you say, look, look, God, at all the good stuff that I've done. I know I'm not perfect, but look, I, I've done it better than most people, and you, and you do that. Then Jesus said that if that's how you come, then when you come before him and you see him face to face, you will hear him say to you, you got it all wrong. I don't even know you. Get out of here. Doing makes your works and your record and your accomplishments and your failure, by the way, the main thing. Believing makes Jesus' works and his righteousness and his successes and his life and death and resurrection. He is your hope, your confidence, your boast. And so there's really an option. You can relate to God on the basis of what you do by insisting, like the crowd here, on doing or on the basis of what Christ has done by believing. The work is believing, okay? Second, if the work is believing, then that means that sin is forgetting. 
Sin is forgetting. So the implication of Jesus' answer to the crowd's question is that doing right or wrong is rooted in believing. So if there's a doing issue in your life that you're struggling with, then you go to work not on the actual doing. What you need to learn to do is to actually go to work on the believing that's behind the doing. Look there again, verse 29. The work of God is that you believe in him who he has sent, which means that every behavior problem is actually a believing problem. And there are two very important theological words that need to be a part of your vocabulary if you're going to make sense of, of what the Bible's teaching and of the way that you relate to God. And the first of those is justification. There's this word in the Bible, justification. And justification refers to the one-time act of God. You hear that? The one-time act of God declaring us righteous in Christ by crediting our sins to Jesus' account on the cross and then crediting his righteousness and his moral record and his beauty, and all of his glory to all our account. In justification, we are counted righteous for Jesus' sake. And so we read last week from Romans 4 and from Psalm 32, Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sins. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Isn't that great news? Who doesn't want that? That's justification. But sanctification, the second word, sanctification, Sanctification is the ongoing work of God by which he makes us more and more like Jesus over time. Okay? Justification, the one-time act of God, declaring us righteous in Christ. Sanctification, the ongoing work of God by which he makes us more and more like Jesus over time. The book of Hebrews says it like this. He says that, that God, at one time, through one sacrifice, once for all, once for all, through the offering of Jesus' life and death, he has perfected for all time. Do you hear that? That's justification. Perfected for all time. Perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. That's what that verse So Jesus has, if you're here and your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then Jesus has perfected, past single action, perfected those for all time, those who are being sanctified, present, ongoing, passive verb. It's all God's work from beginning to end. It's all grace. But you have to understand those two. There's, there's justification and sanctification. Now, I gave you a Richard Lovelace quote there where he says that much that we have interpreted as a defect of sanctification in church people is really an outgrowth of their loss of bearing with respect to justification. Now, this is so, so important. And I think it's exactly what Jesus is getting at here. He means that if you're going through a struggle with sin, if there is a moral failure that you can't seem to overcome, you know, Bob Newhart's, you know, advice is not working for you. Just stop it, right? That's just, I can't, I've tried, I, it's not helping me, I can't seem to, if you're going through that kind of issue or struggle in your life, the problem isn't that you're not trying hard enough. It might be, I guess I should say, it could be that, but most likely, most likely that's not the case. And so the solution probably isn't doing more going to church more, reading the Bible more. The problem actually for most people is that you have forgotten the gospel. Something's gone wrong in your understanding of justification. You've lost your gospel footing and the gospel is the power of God and what's happening is, is you've become disconnected from the power source and so the solution then is believing rightly which is why you should go to church and why you should read your Bible because those practices help you believe which is the work. Every defect in sanctification is because you're forgetting the truth of the gospel. And so we have to learn how to solve behavior problems by solving the believing problems underneath them. But of course, you have to be able to diagnose that 
You have to, you have to live in the deeper parts of your, of your life, of your heart, where the unbelief is, the part, that, you know, the part where most people aren't willing to even go, because that's part of what it means to live with gospel fluency, to be a person who is not able just to kind of have an awkward conversation about Jesus and church and what they believe, but, and not just talk about your behavior and the things that are going on in your life, but to be able to talk about your heart, to be able to really open up and, and understand the inner deep workings of your life, the deeper stuff. And so I want to try to help you get started. In many ways, this sermon is a workshop uh, with a few examples, first maybe from the big picture and then with one or two specific things. But let's talk big picture for a minute in thinking about this, that the sin is, sin is forgetting. I think what Jesus is telling us here explains the typical characterization of so many religious folks in the movies and the shows. Have you noticed that whenever, uh, whenever Hollywood dares to put a religious character in a movie or show, almost exclusively those characters are presented as very, very moral people, but very, very bad people. And the implication is that their morality, that their sternness, their being so serious about spiritual things has somehow corrupted them and made them a bad person, which is why you ought to just throw that morality stuff out. Because look what it does to people. Look at the kind of people it turns people into. Now, and you know, and, and it gets so, it's so interesting. I mean, it's even, you even see these characters as being violent sometimes. I mean, they're violent, they're aggressive, they're mean, they're belittling to other people. And of course, it's a caricature for sure. It's an exaggeration, but I think it is an exaggeration though of something that is true of a lot of religious people. At least I've come across some in my day and time. They become so focused on the behavioral externals, which are for the most part, able to be eliminated through the willpower that most people have, that they begin to ignore the submerged continents of pride and covetousness and hostility beneath the surface. Now that phrase is so powerful, I think. In other words, it's possible to become so concerned with just outwardly what's going on with kind of the surface level behavioral stuff in your life that you become, you begin to ignore whether willfully or not, you begin, you ignore, hear it, the submerged continents of pride and jealousy and hostility. Now, that image is so helpful. They say that only 10% of an iceberg is above the waterline. The other 90% of the total mass of the ice is hidden underneath the water. Now, think of your sin that way. Think of your sin that way. Whatever you're aware of, I have good news. Cheer up. Whatever you're aware of, it's about 10% of how bad you really are. You may know 10%. Most everybody else only knows 1%. That's even better news. Maybe 10%, but the other 90% of, is, is hiding. It's underneath. Uh, it's underneath what can be seen in outward appearance. Now, so here's the thing. If that's true, if, if 10% is, is what's actually there, then doing, focusing on doing is really only focusing on about 10% of the problem. There's, there's 90% that you're not even dealing with, and the believing, is, the believing is the other 90%. And so if you only focus on the doing, if you just spend your life trying to eradicate the kind of, you know, surface-level, obvious, public things in your life and not the deeper heart issues, if you're not dealing with the 90% that you can only get at through believing, well, that's what's wrong with so much of Christianity, and it's why they make us the bad guys in the movies, Okay, big picture, but let's talk, let's talk a little, little more specifically. And here, 
and this is scary, but I, I'll just talk about me because I know me the best, okay? So here, here we go. Don't, anyway, there's no avoiding it. Let's just jump in. So let's just say that my besetting, my besetting sin in my personality is, let's say like being loose with the truth. Y'all didn't laugh. The first service laughed. There you go. Thank you. I got to laugh. I chuckle for something. Loose with the truth. Now, what, are we, what is that really called? Lying. Okay? Now, I'm a product of divorce, of a broken home. There's a lot in my story that has the confluence of a lot of those things. Uh, and so, if, you know, if I have an issue where I can struggle with always telling the truth in the way that I should, you know, then what I've got to do is say, okay, that's a problem. And it's a problem that I want to address. But if I'm going to address that problem in my life, I've got to start asking deeper questions, though, right? I can't just like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do better next time. That most times doesn't really work very well for people. So I've got to say, okay, what's going on? What's, what's going on in this? What's really happening in my heart that would lead me to this wrong behavior? Why would I, why would I continue to not, to not tell the truth as I should? And I realize that I have learned over the years to lie because I want people to think well of me. I don't want to hurt or disappoint other people. Um, I don't want them to be upset with me, right? And all of those things are true, but what's the real problem? What's the believing problem? And the believing problem is all of that that I've described means that I am failing in those moments of being tempted in this way. I'm failing to in real time be rejoicing in my acceptance through Christ. I'm still trying to get my righteousness from what other people think of me, and so I'm managing people's impressions of me. I'm trying to, I don't want to tell them the truth because I know it's going to make them mad, and I don't want them to be mad because I don't want to be mad at me, so let's just not even go there. Do you see what I'm doing? It's a justification problem. It's a justification problem. And so if that's true, then if I'm going to really deal with this issue in my life, I've got to go to work there, Okay. Now, second example, and this is less personal, but I've been thinking a lot about work because that passage in 2 Corinthians really meant a lot to me on Friday. I don't know. But there in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, Paul taught about his work he, and how he thought about his work. And he said that his goal in the things that he was doing in his work life was that he would do his work with simplicity and sincerity. And those two words just landed on me like a sledgehammer because simplicity means not overdoing it, not taking himself too seriously, not trying to do too much, you know, just being just simple and going home at the end of the day and saying, you know what, I did what I could and that's all there is to do today. Sincerity, like from the right motivations, you know, with the right intentions uh, and those sorts of things. And so then I'm reading that and I'm driving down the road to a meeting I had on Friday and I, I start to pray, well, what about me? I wonder, you know, am I, am I overworking? Am I properly motivated in my work if I become lazy you know and I'm starting to ask questions of myself thinking about that and, and, and then I'm saying you know okay if I'm overworking if I'm close to burnout because I can get there I mean I hope I don't think I'm the only person in the room but I can get there I can start to overwork and be really close to burnout I think where, where's that come from what's what's really going on there and then I, I dig down but see you got to dig down a little bit you dig down into your belief and you think what is it that I'm what is it that I'm believing wrongly as I do that? And perhaps it's that I'm not trusting in God to provide for my family. And I think that I've got to do it on my own and that he's not, I can't really rely upon him. Or, or maybe I'm trying to earn a righteousness through my works that everybody, I mean, they fired Jonathan Edwards, guys. You're going to fire me one day too, right? I mean, right? I mean, I want, I want to keep this job for as long as I can. I like being with you. And so I want you to think I'm doing a good job, right? Do you see what I'm saying? And I'm building a righteousness out of what people think about my performance at my job, see, that's, that's a believing problem. That's starting to get at the right things because it's getting underneath the behavior to 
what am I really believing and how am I believing wrongly here? Or if I'm unmotivated, or if I'm apathetic, because I can get to be times where I'm just really apathetic and I don't have the motivation that I should in my work. Where does that come from? Well, maybe, maybe it's that I'm, I'm not inspired by God's love the way that I should be. Maybe I'm not working as to the Lord, right, for his sake, from a deep sense of gratitude and love because I'm already loved and I'm living out of the overflow of all that he's done for me and it's properly motivating me to show up to work and do my best for his glory and not just because I get a paycheck. You see what I'm saying? And that's a believing issue too. And that, that's, how you, that's how you do life as a follower of Jesus, according to Jesus in these two verses. You cultivate your heart with gospel truth. It's like spiritual CBT. Do you know what CBT is? Cognitive behavioral therapy. It's this, it's this theory in, in psychology that the way to really get unstuck in your life is you have to recognize the psychological distortions that are causing the problems, and then you have to learn strategies for re-examining those distortions in light of, of reality. So you say, I, I know I'm catastrophizing here, and you know you're being unreasonable, but you're catastrophizing something, and oh, it's a terrible, it's, it's about this big of a deal, really, but it feels like this huge deal, you know? Your 13-year-old, you know, adolescent child is coming out and whatever you're dealing with in your life, you know? And, and you have to realize, oh, no, that's not real, and you have, to take, you have to take control of yourself in that moment, and you have to replace those wrong thoughts with the right thoughts about what is real and what is true. And that is, in many ways, we, you know, long before CBT came along, <laughs> we had this gospel method of dealing with our lives, the real sin. The sin underneath all the other sins is forgetting. And you have to remind yourself of the truth. So third, and then we'll be finished. Third, then growth, if that is true, if, if um, the work is believing and if sin is forgetting, then growth is repenting. And you do, repent, you do repentance by keeping faith and works in the right order, not by trying harder. And so the passage in Galatians, I need to finish up here. It's helpful. And so Jonathan read it to us earlier, and you can look back there in your worship folder if you want to. But Paul, he chided them for deserting the gospel and turning to a different gospel, which was, in fact, no gospel at all. Because a group called the Circumcision, these Jewish Christians had come behind Paul at Galatia and begun to, in verse 7, he says, distort the gospel. And that's a very specific word there. It means to turn around or to get something out of order. And so Paul, Paul came to Galatia and preached the gospel of grace. He said, if you believe in Jesus, then you're saved. And then in being saved, you will do good works. But this group reversed that order and they said, you have to believe and do good works and then you can be saved. They had a Jesus and theology, Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and a particular doctoral statement. But Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And this was Paul's argument. And here's, here's a sentence to remember that I stole from somebody, but I can't even remember who I stole it from. To help the gospel is to lose the gospel. Remember, justification and sanctification, well, there's an order. Justification comes first, then sanctification. Justification comes at the beginning of the process of sanctification and not at the end. But the false teachers in Galatians were saying, no, you have to be sanctified first. And if you do all the things right, if you follow all the rules, if you're circumcised, if you obey the law, if you do this and this and this, then maybe at the end of doing all of those things, you can finally be justified. And Paul was surprised that the Galatian Christians were so quickly falling back into the moralism of their former lives. But we should not be because we have their example and we know ourselves that we have lawish hearts. 
what Dane Ortland has called a mental universe of law because we love being in control. And that is what the law promises. The law says you can determine your own destiny. Just follow the rules, you can make life work. Under the law, the outcomes of life remain firmly in our hands, which is why you hear so many five steps to fill-in-the-blank kinds of talks in church services. Give me five steps to a good marriage so I can put all my energy into doing those five things and make it happen. We're addicted to law because we love control. And religious people are religious for the same reason that irreligious people are irreligious. They want to stay in control of their lives. The law offends the human heart because it says you have to do this. And we don't like being told what to do. But here's the thing. The gospel offends even more because it says there is nothing you can do. And if there's anything we hate more than being told what to do, it's being told that there's nothing that can be done. I know that because 68% of people who identify as Christians still believe that God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. You know it's not, right? It's not? That's not in there. We want it to be. We want to think that that's how God does it because then we could keep him in our debt. Sin is not just being bad. Sin is being bad or being good as a strategy to maintain, maintain control of your life. Sin is wanting to be able to do life on your own without God. So the sinful part of your heart that remains even after you become a Christian, the flesh, the Bible calls it the flesh, is constantly pulling you back towards worksness. And it's not just theology, though. See, there's a psychology to all of this that it usually lingers even after you get the doctrine right. And so Richard Lovelace, he claimed that only a fraction of professing Christians get this right. And in my experience, that sounds about right. Most of us are actually operating with a theoretical commitment to keeping faith ahead of works. But in our day-to-day -day experience, we're actually, what's happening is, is we're falling into relying on our sanctification for our justification. Now, it's huge. This is huge, okay? This is, this is the whole problem. This is the whole thing. He said, Lovely said, we typically draw our confidence in God's love for us from how sincere we are or some past conversion experience we've had or maybe recent religious performance instead of believing we look to those things we look out instead of believing instead of looking outside of ourselves to Christ as the only grounds for our acceptance and then listen to this phrase he says and then relaxing <laughs> relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and gratitude in other words the key to growing spiritually is, ironically, to figure out how to relax. We are striving to rest, the Hebrew writers put it. Striving to rest. Steve Brown used to say the only people who get better are people who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. Instead, Lovelace noted that the religious person who isn't sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements, they are doomed to be subconsciously radically insecure people. And listen to this. He says, much more so than even an irreligious person. That is fascinating to me. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that if you're not careful, that dynamite that Jonathan was talking about, if you're not careful, if you become religious, all that religion might do is make you even more secure, insecure than you were when you didn't believe that often religious people are more insecure and neurotic and crazy than irreligious people are. 
Yeah, can I get an amen? I need, Steve, thank you, Steve. Amen. Because right. we know ourselves. And so a Christian person who, for whatever reason, has reverted back to working and not believing, they will often suffer from greater feelings of condemnation and insecurity than even non-Christians because they know the deep magic that Lewis talked about. They know the deep magic, the law stuff, but they've forgotten the deeper magic, the gospel stuff. So Dane Ortland said there are two ways to live. You can live for God's heart or you can live from God's heart. You can live for God's heart, meaning to be constantly trying to prove yourself and earn God's smile, right? Sanctification first and then at the end of all of that justification. Or you can live from God's heart. That is to know that you're loved no matter what because of Jesus and Jesus only. That's justification first. He goes on, the whole of the Christian life then is the fight to overcome, hear his words, our chronic tendency to function out of a subtle belief that our obedience strengthens God's love. That is, to keep justification and sanctification in the right order, recognizing that you will, every one of us in the room, even if you believe, even if you're a long time into your relationship with Jesus, you will inevitably slip into performance-ism. And you can know when that's happening, it's when you start to get a superiority complex or an inferiority complex. Anytime you start to feel really good about yourself or anytime you start to feel really, really bad about yourself, you're losing the gospel. And when that happens, you need to take yourself in hand, remind yourself of the truth for as long as it takes. You got to take a whole day off work or a half day or maybe just an hour in the morning, however long it takes you to take yourself in hand and get control of yourself and preach the gospel to yourself for as long as you have to until your emotions and your self-concept and your view of others and all of it starts to come back in alignment with the gospel. That's repentance. Okay? Repentance is changing your mind, replacing wrong thoughts with the truth. Now go back to my problem with lying. Here's what I have to do. I have to say to myself when I find myself in the middle of that, I'm too concerned about managing other people's opinions of me. That's not my righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. What am I doing? That's so silly. I, I can be honest about my shortcomings and failures because they don't cause God to think any less of me. What he thinks matters more than what other people think. Who are they? And you do that again and again and again for the rest of your life. And it's a skill you have to learn and it takes a certain amount of practice to be able to get to the real issue. Which is why when we say the gospel is our curriculum, this is what we mean. That the key to the spiritual life is not to grow beyond the gospel, but to make sure you never do. Because only the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And we are changed by being continually renewed by believing the gospel in new ways. That's where all the good works come from. So our strategy... I'll finish with this. Our strategy for good marriages in our church is not merely a marriage seminar. We might do that. We did one recently. But mostly our strategy for good marriages in our church is to equip you to meet the challenges of marriage. And there are many. To meet those challenges with the gospel. That is to learn to live with the wisdom and energy to supernaturally love and serve your spouse and not yourself. And guess what? Only the gospel can do that. And the more you develop fluency in the gospel, the more you'll, you'll find yourself free to live there. Our strategy for helping parents with all of these kids is to develop gospel fluency in them so that they parent with grace. Because if you're a parent, we want you to love your kids but not need them so much. Because if you do, then you'll be too permissive. But we also want you to help, help you turn... We want to help you not turn your record in parenting into a righteousness because then you'll be too harsh or full of anxiety about how they're doing or how you're doing or how their 
friends are doing or how everybody's doing, right? One key for parents is to know that God, God, the good God intends for your kids isn't because of your parenting. It's in spite of that. And you can rest in that. And if you, parents, if you could just relax a little, you become a much better parent. And all the kids said, amen. Nudge them. Go ahead. Nudge them. You listening to him? Nudge them. They nudge you all the time. I watch them. Now's your turn. Like, (laughs) he's talking to you. That's what you say. The work is believing and sin is forgetting and growth is repenting. Ray Ortland has said this, if you're so good at Christianity that you need Jesus less than when you began, then you've completely lost your way. But if you find yourself needing him more today than when you started, you're doing it right. Amen? That's the truth. Jay Hart wrote an old hymn. He said this. He said, his word is this, poor sinner here. Believe on me and banish fear. Cease from your own works, bad or good, and wash your garments in my blood. Amen. Let's pray and talk our hearts into doing that very same thing. So, Father, we confess to you that we are those who would, because of just ignorance or willfulness or whatever the case might be, we are those who would just focus all of our attention on the 10% and completely ignore the 90. We are, we are so content as a product of our culture to live a shallow, surface-level life and never go to the depths because there's scary stuff down there in the dark. And yet you invite us with this invitation of comfort and warmth and love to, to not be afraid to explore those deep, dark, nasty places of our lives and to remind ourselves that the work before us is not merely to do it better than we've done before, but to learn how to believe in the place of our doing and to find our doing even better because we're believing rightly. And so when we become before you this morning and say, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Would you help our unbelief? Would you work, Father, through the Spirit this morning in our hearts and lives, in places and crevices in our hearts where we have not believed rightly to help us to do so? And may the result be that we find more strength and energy and creativity and want to in our doing so that you might be glorified in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have a bright tomorrow. Amen. You with me? Hello. All right. And so if you're, faith, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we would say to you, that is the hope and the tomorrow of every person who has believed in Christ. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, put your faith in Jesus. Don't you want to? Uh, you will never find a better friend. You will never find a truer love. And if you're here and you're, you're a long time in your relationship with Christ, then believe in him yet again today and then get up tomorrow and do it again all the way until we gather on that day when all the sad things have come untrue and we just celebrate that he has brought us home. But until then, this is the promise for all who believe. So put your faith in Christ. Hear the words of this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.